2: Remember those Australian bushfires from the ancient past that was February? Climate issues have never been further from the front pages, yet we have a once in a generation chance to respond differently as economies the world over are redesigned. Join the iconic author of No Logo and On Fire, The Burning Case for a Green New Deal, as we consider transformative possibilities for the coming rebuilding of our inner and outer worlds.
1: This is a moment to interrogate what is essential, right? And that includes what is essential to our lives? Like, is what we missed most when we were in lockdown shopping or our friends, <laughs> you know, our loved ones, uh, that, the sense of community?
2: Hi, everyone. Welcome to Wiser Conversations, together at home. My name is Derek Handley. Each episode, I sit down live with an amazing thinker an author, an artist, a religious or spiritual leader. We have a conversation to consider our lives and the world around us in these very surreal times. There is no better moment to reflect on all that truly matters to us and how we're gonna navigate ourselves through this pandemic. Welcome. Welcome, thank you for joining us.
1: I'm so happy to be with you and thanks for creating this space. And thank you all for filling up the room and sending little messages. I miss humans.
2: (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So where in the world are you right now? And how have you experienced this on your side of the world?
1: Yeah. Um, So where I am is I'm in my husband's office in New Brunswick, New Jersey, which is in central New Jersey. I teach at Rutgers University, which is five minutes from here, which is a huge public university. 70,000 students. And I moved to New Jersey two years ago, a little bit less than two years ago, to take this three-year position It's the first job I've had in 20 years because I've just been writing books and...
2: Congratulations.
1: (laughs) Thanks. I, I moved to New Jersey because this was a pretty sort of special job that I was offered. My position is called the Gloria Steinem Chair in Media, Culture and Feminist Studies. And it's nice to have a chair named after a living... Feminist activist uh, instead of a pharmaceutical company or something. And the position is I do teach, I teach a small seminar class, but it's also a a convening role. The idea is to sort of bring people out of different silos within academia, but also in the activist world and to create spaces where we can have important and difficult conversations. And so we had been doing that. We've been doing a series about the Green New Deal and amplifying the voices of care workers, of teachers, of nurses, of home care workers, of indigenous knowledge in the Green New Deal, of migrants in the Green New Deal. And then it all shut down. And we've been, yeah, right in a COVID hotspot. New Jersey is the second highest number of deaths and cases from the virus in the United States right after New York. And I'm Canadian. So I've been really homesick. And and it's been scary, you know, being... We've both been sick, you know, we thought we had the virus, couldn't get a test. I mean, we're not used to a for-profit healthcare system, certainly one that's totally overloaded. So it's been an intense couple months, to be honest with you, because we've really been in the middle of it and had friends who've been ill and still feel like it feels very real. I, re- You're coming out of it in New Zealand and starting to poke your heads out, but that's not where we're how,
2: at. How have you dealt with it? Like, how have you personally and as a family kind of tried to to manage this?
1: Um, um, it's been a challenge. I don't feel like we're managing it very well, and I don't think it's something that should be managed well. I think the nuclear family is a bad technology for this kind of crisis because you're going to have a biome community. It should be a little bit larger. And so we certainly miss our extended clan and But we've been doing our best, you know, and just trying to get through it. I have a seven-year-old son who has special needs. And I think it's been really, really hard for him as his learning has converted to Zoom rooms and Google classrooms. And it's just been really interesting because, you know, as an adult, like I already spend a lot of my time on screens, but for my son, like he really hates it he said to me the other day, I want a six week vacation from Zoom. I'm like you and everybody else, you know, but it's a terrible thing to do to little kids, you know, and and a lot of kids really can't handle it, you know, and I just feel really acutely aware of how many people are being left behind in this conversion to what they call remote learning, which is really like parents doing tech support, mostly women. In my case, (laughs) I'm really lucky. My husband bears a lot of it, but You know, it's been interesting listening to these tech executives talking about what a grand experiment this has been in in remote learning. And you have all the labor of the mostly female teachers totally erased, as well as the labor of the parents, mostly women, supporting the learning on the other end. And it's all just sort of attributed to machines and programs.
2: I can imagine it's not easy and still not easy over there. As you said, we are starting to kind of poke our heads out of our houses here We've had, you know, almost two months of, I guess, clearer skies than ever, quieter roads than ever, you know, less consumption than ever, lighter footprint on the planet. And I think for a moment, we all were thinking, inspired, maybe contemplating, maybe there's a different way to live. How are you seeing that play out in different parts of the world and different people thinking about what's possible at the moment? And if we don't act or boldly enough we might lose the opportunity to do something about?
1: Well, I think it's really important to stay in touch with what we learned from these moments. From, you know, in New York, they call it a pause. And I think a lot has been revealed. One is that not everybody's been on pause. This has been an unveiling, right, of tremendous inequalities. So there is a kind of the, the quarantined class, the people who have the luxury to stay at home and the people who are really keeping the whole world going right and in this country the people who are making it possible for people like me to stay home right are working without health care are working you know in many cases without sick leave and are working harder than they've ever worked so there's this I think the starkness of the class system particularly in a country that doesn't admit that it has a class system and it's an incredibly racialized class system also the really unequal impacts of the virus itself because of who has the underlying health conditions that makes people more vulnerable to the virus and one of the factors in that is exposure to air pollution right which is related to what you're talking about about the air clearing right because it isn't just that we like it better when the air is clean. It's also that cleaner air actually makes our bodies more able to fight these kinds of viruses. So we have a window, right? We have a window where what has been revealed to us, and I think what's been revealed is different and it's multi-layered, there are these huge injustices that I think feel really, have, all, have always been there, but I think they feel particularly uncomfortable in a, in a good way to a lot of people. I think people are uncomfortable with being sort of serviced by this huge class of people whose lives who are being treated as disposable. You know, there was a piece in the New York Times recently by a subway driver who said that we're simultaneously essential and sacrificial. Right. And that I think that that idea of like people being told their work is essential, but that their lives are Sacrificable is something that a lot of workers are hearing in Amazon warehouses, in meat packing plants, right? So I think one of the lessons of this virus for me is like everywhere that living beings are being warehoused, right? Whether maybe that's a, maybe that's a meat packing plant, maybe that's an elder care facility where both the Residents and the care workers are not being treated with care, the care that they deserve because it's a for-profit model and everything has been cut to the bone. Maybe it's prisons, maybe it's detention facilities. Everywhere that we have created these sort of zones of warehousing life, right, that is where the virus has spread.
2: Mm, Like the migrants in Singapore.
1: Yeah right so that's a lesson for us about the kind of world that we want to rebuild right the kind of what it means to reimagine it's like we can't be treating living beings like this and i say living beings because it is humans but it isn't only humans and so i think we need to hold on to how much we missed each other right as you poke your heads out i want to hold on to how lonely this feels because that's really important because i know that silicon valley actually sees a future where we mostly do stay in our homes and work from home and entertain ourselves from home and get everything delivered from home in touchless, cashless form, you know?
2: You find that a frightening prospect in some senses.
1: I find it so sad. And I think their utopia is a dystopia, but I worry about it being normalized.
2: I mean, we have seen, obviously we've seen, when something is right in your face, governments can act. There's no money, and then all of a sudden there's billions and billions, and in some cases, trillions. I guess that's a positive. Where it goes and how it's getting distributed has got a a whole other set of issues, which you've been talking about a lot recently. What do you think are some of the shining lights that you're seeing around the world that are inspiring you at the moment?
1: Am I allowed to say New Zealand? (laughs) Sure. Um, I do think that your country is offering a really important model and not to say that everything is perfect, right? Like I'm Canadian, I'm used to having my country romanticized by Americans, you know, who are just always looking for hope and no country is perfect. But, you know, that said, I think the number of people who died in all of New Zealand from the virus is 30 or less. And I can tell you that, that more people than that died where I am, you know, before noon today. So that's a huge difference. And I think there's a narrative that wants us to believe that surveillance and technology is the key and has been the key to the success stories. But what I think we see in your experience, but not only your experience, there's, all, there's other places like where my family is in British Columbia, they've had tremendous success. And it isn't, you know, even though technology plays a role, it isn't just outsourcing it to an app. It's an infrastructure of care. It's a kind of political leadership that is not trying to bully a virus into, (laughs) you know, obeying, you know, brute force, which we see from the, you know, the Boris Johnsons and the Donald Trumps and the Jair Bolsonaro's of the world. You know, there is a humanness, a calmness to the places that have been most efficient in dealing with this. So that gives me some hope. But I think that there is hope, as you say, Derek, in just the fact that, we all saw those trillions of dollars being marshaled, right? So there, there, this is a moment where capitalism is breaking its own rules in broad daylight. And whenever you have a moment like that, you have possibility. But it is a short window, right? Before suddenly we're broke. Sorry, right. we can't pay for anything. In fact, yeah. we need the most vulnerable people to pay the cost for the bailouts you know, that have happened in this moment. I think New Zealand, precisely because so many people are looking, have looked to you as a model of a different kind of leadership. And, and I think it's not only through this crisis, but I would also say the Christchurch mosque killings was another moment when we saw, and I don't want to attribute it all to your prime minister. I think leadership comes in many forms and I don't think you can have that kind of leadership at the top unless people are participating in it and buying into it and collectively creating it. I think you are in a moment in your country right now where you have an outsized platform, you know, for for the size of your country. We are looking to you, like it or not.
2: Well, we're calling you in to give us some new ideas too. Like, as you said, you know, it's this moment, it's a window, it's starting to open. Show Um, us what a
1: Green New Deal looks like. (laughs) Well,
2: maybe you can tell us a bit too, what you think it should look like. You've written in your books that, you know, there's a collective emergency creates the opportunity. And I think that's this is kind of it, right? This is the collective emergency that has created an opportunity for us to rethink the future, rethink all the issues and ideas that we know have had demand and are problems. And would you just go into that a little bit and expand on how you think it's more relevant now than than maybe ever?
1: Well, absolutely. The Green New Deal is really a vision for the next economy. It's not a singular policy. It's not like a single climate policy like cap and trade or a carbon tax. It is a plan for how we do this incredibly difficult thing that climate scientists have told us we have to do, which is get entirely off of fossil fuels by mid-century and cut global emissions in half in a decade. And for countries like New Zealand and the United States, Canada, the wealthier countries who've been emitting carbon on an industrial scale for a couple of hundred years, we need to move faster because we carry a climate debt. So what a Green New Deal is, is a plan for how to do that that fights poverty and inequality at the same time, right? So it's a multi-pronged, multi-platformed vision that is building on the work of the global climate justice movement that has been laying out pieces of this around the world. So it's we get to 100% renewable energy. We create huge numbers of jobs in renewables, in energy efficiency, in public transit but we do it in a way that doesn't leave any worker behind from a high carbon sector that guarantees salary levels and benefits levels. It invests in the frontline communities, the communities that have had their land despoiled by fossil fuel extraction and, and have had the polluting industries in their backyards and make sure that they have community ownership, energy democracy over uh, the, new, the, the new green economy. So it isn't just flipping a switch from, you know, one highly centralized, concentrated ownership structure dominated by fossil fuels to one, you know, dominated by renewable energy, but still concentrating power. It also needs, you know, there's different iterations of a Green New Deal, but, you know, I think if we're serious about these targets, we have to be talking about how much we consume, right? And so, you know, there's been all this talk about who is an essential worker. I think we need an essential economy, which means that we need to be building based on What is really important? What we can't live without? And so thinking about this, the lessons of the pandemic that we're still in, right? I think it is a moment where we should be asking, what is essential? What did we value most during this period? One of the things that we talk about, a lot about at the organization I co-founded, The Leap, is that a green job isn't only a guy in a hard hat putting up a solar panel. It's also a nurse you know, caring for the sick. It is a home care worker. It is a teacher. It is a daycare worker. These are low carbon jobs that often get left out of the discussion, and there are ways we can make all of these sectors lower carbon. So it is a vision of a really reinventing. But the reason why it's particularly relevant to the moment we're in is that it's modeled after the original New Deal, which was introduced by uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt in the 1930s, as a massive economic stimulus during a massive ecological and economic crisis. This is one of the things people forget is that the United States was in the Great Depression, but also facing a massive ecological crisis, which was the Dust Bowl. And so, you know, one of the things that FDR did was create the Civilian Conservation Corps, which planted two billion trees, employed two million young people. This is the kind of thing that we should be thinking about as we think about how we emerge from this lockdown period right how do we want how do we want to design the society we actually want to live in
2: and the new deal as a name is brought or as you just said as mentioned is inspired by these mass mobilizations of last century like the new deal of fdr and you also the marshall plan these kind of massive scale efforts to rebuild countries and economies and so it has happened it can happen it just so happens that those efforts also fueled I guess, the lifestyle that we have now, the fossil fuel-driven, consumption-driven lifestyle, and you know we've had eight weeks of consuming a lot less, being a lot more still, again, if you're in that sense, if you're not one of the people on the front line. I guess, isn't it really up to us to have a more of a conversation about how we want to live? Because you can't just policy-wise solve all these things unless the country or citizens want to change their lifestyles and their behaviors. And doesn't that rub against you know this demand and this need for the economy to grow and and get the wheels turning again.
1: Yeah, it's a really important point that the New Deal and then the post war reconstruction period created the the consumer lifestyle that is at the heart of the of the climate crisis, and that's why you know I've been talking about this with a friend, a playwright Eve Ensler, who now goes by V, and she's been talking about this idea of like. This is a moment to interrogate, you know, as I was saying earlier, what is essential, right? And that includes what is essential to our lives. Like, is what we missed most when we were in lockdown shopping or our friends, <laughs> you know, our loved ones, that, the sense of community, right? Because immediately, you know, shopping gets rebranded as an act of patriotism, Right where it's just like, you you know. Right, that's what's happening
2: now. We're being encouraged to go support, you know, everything, which I understand, but it's everything that's on the old system. Yeah. like the the system that isn't what we need to transform, basically.
1: Right, and people, I think, are rightly afraid of losing independent businesses and having, you know, an Amazonification of everything. And that's interesting, too, that certainly what I hear most about is that fear of, of losing what's left of the local to these BMFs. So look, I think that unless there is a really confident vision for how we are gonna have a thriving society, right? Then we are just gonna go back to our old ways. Unless we have a real plan for how we are going to employ young people on a huge scale and the huge numbers of people who've lost their jobs in meaningful work, right? At The Leap, we talk about building an economy of care and repair. So, I mean, we are seeing the importance of care work. You know, there's talk about like a community health corps, which would include a lot of young people that are out there doing contact tracing and making sure that it is pot, because we're going to be living with this virus for a long time. I mentioned a civilian conservation corps. I think it's a great moment to kick off a climate conservation core young people right now are graduating into a really really unstable economy they're not sure whether they should they're able to continue their educations or you know what, what they educated for you know in a moment like that that's when we had this amazing project of uh, uh, going out there and planting two billion trees imagine if indigenous people were the teachers in that project were the designers of that project where where this was an opportunity for real respect for Indigenous land rights, knowledge. So we need to be really bold and really creative if we are to avoid that bouncing backwards to right. those old patterns. So
2: the vision side of it is really a collective or leadership-driven thing that is bigger than any individual person. What about, you know, there's hundreds and hundreds of people on this at the moment, Zoom, and what is it that you think individually people could or should be doing differently in their own lives or with this window of opportunity to put pressure or inspire our leaders and collective to think bigger, think bolder, think more, you know, sustainably?
1: Well, I think if we did enjoy the return of birdsong, if we did enjoy not having our cities choked in traffic, you know, now is the moment to say, you know we need to take our cities back from cars and we are starting to see some examples of that in Milan as they reopened created unveiled a sort of a, a urban redesign taking roads back for cyclists pedestrians and this is part of their covid response right like we are all going to need a little bit more room to live together in cities if we're not going to be on top of each other in the same ways and so Cafes can spill onto sidewalks, pedestrians can spill into streets, but that's gonna require some real planning, some 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 really creative urban design. I think we also need to be guaranteeing housing as a human right and thinking about what green housing really looks like and equitable housing really looks like in a moment like this. And these are all big job creators and they and they create meaningful jobs. So as I said, you know, I people are looking to New Zealand because you have provided such extraordinary leadership through a couple of big crises in recent years, terrorist attack, and through this pandemic, the leadership we need from you now is how we build a different kind of economy. We've already seen some very important steps being taken to seal off the fossil fuel frontier and, and, and saying no to new offshore drilling. But we also need to be winding down existing fossil fuel projects and we need to be offering guarantees to those workers to remediate land and existing fossil fuel. And your, your big challenge is agriculture, as you know, right?
2: right. So what you say, like you've seen some of the policies that have been renounced with the money that's been put out so far, nothing, you know, the climate and environmental movement would say that it's a very small amount so far, but I think there's still a lot more to come. You know, we have 10,000 jobs in the conservation area, which has been committed. We've got some trains and some ferries and things like that. But I think nothing big and bold. If you had a wish list, what would be a couple of the biggest things that you think we should be going for? We know from the budget so far that it looks like they've got another $20 billion they want to talk about in the coming months. So there is opportunity for all of us on this call and you included to help us put some things out there. And I think they really will be listened to.
1: You know, look, I would say that it's really important as people poke their heads out to create spaces where people can dream together about this for there to really be some collective authorship over this, what the next economy should be, what the, what this society should be. So, you know, we can all come up with the policies. We need more rail and we need, you know, green affordable housing, and it should have healthcare and childcare in the lobby. And look, there's great policies out there. But I think equally important As we refine each other is having safe, maybe outdoor meetings where people, where people can dream together because the more people are involved in designing this, right? And I think some of it is sectoral, like get your teachers together. What, What do we want our schools to look like? If we know that crowding creates a hazard, let's have more teachers, smaller classrooms, more outdoor education, let's serve, you know, locally grown food in the school cafeterias, let's have electric school buses, make them in New Zealand. I mean, once you start asking people their ideas, it's so exciting. What should the post office look like, right? The post office can be checking in on the elderly, it can be delivering locally grown produce, you know, you can have charging stations out front. We know what the platforms are, but what we haven't had enough of is that real grassroots buy-in. And I think it would be so exciting for movements in New Zealand to create. You know, when I was in Puerto Rico after Hurricane Maria, I participated in this amazing Green New Deal town hall. (laughs) They can call it a Green New Deal, but, you know, these are just ideas that have been going under different brand names, (laughs) rebrandings over the years. But they were talking about a just transition for Puerto Rico after Hurricane Maria. They had it in a field. They had hundreds of people. They had 60 organizations. They created a coalition called Quinta Gente, the people together. So, I mean, I think that as we come together, let's make it substantive. Let's give people spaces to have real conversations about the world that we want, to grieve, right? To really, like, I think one of the things that we've missed is that sort of communal spaces for feeling how frightening this moment is. You're lucky you didn't lose you know, nearly as many people as you could have. But people have still been through something really, really intense together.
2: I mean, I think that's really a great idea. I don't know if we have mobilized these kinds of public forums to co-create visions and co-create concepts that we can push forward, which I think is a really great opportunity. And many of the people on this Zoom will probably be interested in taking that up, as I would as well. We have a question that's kind of very simple, which is around what the biggest opportunity for new zealand is what do you think the biggest opportunity for new zealand is during this great reset
1: the biggest opportunity for new zealand i mean in some sense it's temporal you know that you have like a head start on some of the bigger economies right now because of the way this the pandemic has been handled so you have this opportunity to set some precedents and show what can work and to, to have that story amplified In terms of the biggest opportunities for New Zealand, you know, I think agriculture is a huge industry for you, right? And so I think that that's a huge opportunity to show what a, you know, I hate the word sustainable, but, you know, a very, maybe like we could say like a non-extractive or agroecological farming model would look like, which is a huge change. And I know, you know, people are struggling with, the extent to which your economy is based on animal agriculture and that that is a huge challenge and you know i'm not here to pretend that i know how to like fix new zealand yeah. for you i think that'd be a little bit arrogant i haven't even been to new zealand in, I mean, I think 15 years, and it isn't for me to say, but I, you know, I think that you have the right questions here. I also think you have opportunities, huge opportunities to lead on not just renewables, but on community-owned and controlled renewables that really show a different model. I think that Indigenous leadership coming from New Zealand is incredibly important, and that's another opportunity to show what decolonization means beyond the slogans you know and you know we'll be we'll be watching that's all i can say you know we'll (laughs) we'll be watching and amplifying you know there's only so much a canadian stranded in new jersey can tell you you know about what you should do (laughs) but i would invite you to you know plug in with this process that we've just kicked off around a global green new deal yeah um can you tell us about that sure it was actually supposed to be an in-person conference in april that the organization I mentioned earlier, The Leap and War on Want in London, were co-hosting to bring more organizers and intellectuals from the global south to inform the conversations that we've been having about a Green New Deal, both in North America and in Europe. And that was one of the many, 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 many things that were canceled when everything was canceled. So that process has has moved online. We had a conversation today with 4,000 people participating with Arundati Roy, the brilliant novelist and nonfiction writer and activist, Asad Raymond, the executive director of War & was sharing it. But the idea is that there's going to be a digital process which is feeding into like what a Green New Deal would be. Because, you know, when we talk about a Green New Deal in places like New Zealand or the United States, Canada, um, we have to be really careful that it isn't all of our shiny green things aren't built on very unethical mining practices in the global south and this sort of logic of endless extraction and really not reckoning with what is happening you know at the sites of extraction and also the sites of disposal. I mentioned right. the sort of framework of care and repair. I think one of the repairs has to be like repairing our stuff and moving beyond the, the culture of you know, disposability call the circular economy but yeah maybe plug in with that and let us know how it
2: goes. We have another question. I know you've got to go in a couple minutes, but this is probably an important question that you really have a lot of experience in, which is the psychology behind change is really often the biggest barrier to change, right? And we're talking about systems level change here, not just individual level change. What thoughts do you have around how we combat the kind of inertia or the issues that we may have as we embark on this in terms of our own psychology about the barrier to change and the the, the difficulty it is to change a system? Because you can look at it and go, it's all too hard. I just want to go back to how it was and I will continue that way.
1: Look, it's a big barrier, but I think that it's easier to imagine change when everything has just been shaken up the way it has just been shaken up, right? Things have not already returned to normal. There are things that we liked maybe about this period, right? And and maybe we liked, you know, not commuting as much or, or flying as much for work. Maybe this, you know, it's easier to think about rationing air travel in a rational way of using air travel for ways that are essential, as opposed to as if there are no costs, as if there are the, no externalities in a moment when flights have essentially been grounded than at a moment when our skies are filled with planes. It's easier to have that conversation now than it was a couple of months ago. It is easier to talk about what we want our cities to look like and what the role the automobile should play in our cities when, you know, our cities have been quiet for so long as opposed to the moment when they are utterly choked with traffic. So I don't think we are up against those powerful forces of inertia as much as we were a few months ago. It's never going to be easy. But this is a moment where we actually really need to act pretty quickly before all those forces descend.
2: And uniquely to New Zealand, and there's a lot of people in the comments asking me to just ask you this before we go, the role of indigenous, and you have touched on it. How do you think that can be catalytic?
1: Well, I mean, I I mentioned it in, in the context of, we know that there's a lot of work that needs to be done on the land, right? But that can be done in a way, you know, you can plant trees in a way that is really disrespectful of indigenous rights, that creates kind of conservation museums and indig- a lot of indigenous people have lost land in sort of white conservationism. But, you know, what would it look like to think about healing the damage done to the land? And so that, you know, it's a kind of a re- rewilding, reforestation, land rehabilitation process. That is actually led by Indigenous people that isn't, at, you know, doing sort of after the fact consultation, but is led and grounded in an Indigenous ways of knowing and, and structures of leadership. So I think that that's one place to start. There is also initiative in North America that is an Indigenous response to the Green New Deal called the Red Deal that brings together Indigenous scholars and grassroots activists to begin that kind of road mapping or building on it. So I would just refer people to that. Yeah, there's, I think there's some really good writing there. In Canada, the process around the Green New Deal, there's been some writing that I think foregrounds Indigenous rights and the importance of the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous People, free prior and informed consent. I mean, all of these are you know, foundational and often get swept
2: away. Thank you so much, Naomi. I know you've got to go and chat to some Australians in a little bit. I think you do. Who are they? (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for joining us on Wiser Conversations, Together at Home. If you like this episode, please share it. And if you haven't yet, go on and push subscribe. See you next time.
0: Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row